Welcome back to another episode of COVIDcation. We hope you enjoyed our special edition episode last week. We want you to know we plan on continuing the discussion around anti-racism and what it means to be an ally. Moving forward, the conversation must continue if we want continued change. This week, we'll be covering politics and focusing on how the area has changed during these times. We haven't experienced a pandemic of this magnitude in just over a century, so no current politician has dealt with a health crisis like this before. I think it's safe to say those working in the field are just as nervous and confused as the rest of us. Not only are they adapting to this new normal, but they are also facing a revolution. On top of a worldwide fight for equality, politicians are also facing a worldwide fight to stop coronavirus and to protect people most vulnerable, which in many cases includes marginalized communities. This week, however, our focus returns to politics and what the political response means for all of us. We should note for context that the COVIDcation team conducted our interviews for this episode before George Floyd's murder. This includes our first story. We thought it would be helpful to understand the impact of COVID-19 on student government and decisions about whether colleges and universities will open in the fall. I spoke with Durham College President Don Lavisa. He stressed that he doesn't make decisions alone. Lavisa receives input from many people before making any changes. He says he also aids in the decision-making process for 24 colleges across Ontario. Consult with, um, with as many people as possible to consider what options we have and, uh, and then try to move forward. And, and when I say that, so I, I sit on a committee of presidents of all 24 colleges. And so as a college system, we start, you know, what are we going to do as a system? We speak to governments and through governments on a regular basis. We also, of course, get information from the provincial health authority. Moving to online uh, was really the only option that we had, given the circumstances. Making the transition to online classes must have been difficult because, as students, it was quite a shock. Actually, Lavisa says he was confident in the decision because Durham College already had online services available uh, for students prior to COVID-19. We had to make the decision to sort of go online for not only delivery, remote delivery, but also, of course, to deliver our services. And of course, a lot of, a lot of what we, we've done even before uh, COVID, we were pretty expert on, in online learning in a lot of areas. Uh, and we've also gone digital in some of our services. So uh, it was a big move, but one that was necessary. Someone who can attest to that is Durham College Student Inc.'s newest executive chairperson, Jenna Peace. Now, Mel, what exactly does being DCSI's executive chairperson mean? Well, Peace says she is essentially the representative for the student body. In other words, she's their voice. Peace campaigned right before we made the switch to online learning and ever since this transition, Peace has been struggling to fully immerse herself into her new role. Right now, because it's all virtual, I am often in a Zoom call where every little square is full on my screen, and I'm not getting that interpersonal connection with everyone. I just know names and faces, essentially. So ideally, when I get back to campus, I'll be able to go through that, but I'm missing that big part of, you know, the meeting and knowing everyone. 
I can imagine how hard this transition has been for Peace, but how has it been for her as a student? Peace, who's in the public relations program at Durham College, says her internet has been the hardest part of online learning. She lives in a forested area out in Newtonville, Ontario, and struggles to get a strong connection. A lot of my teachers, Lee enough, were understanding of my situation, but I often couldn't be in the class. I would be talking to a student who was in the class to do the work. Like I would be texting and doing my work at the same time because my internet, like it'll shut off. It's bad weather, like whatever the situation is, it'll go down. Um, I've had to use a lot of my own phone data to, to do things, which is stressful, but it is what it is. Fortunately, Peace is still working through her plan of action. Even though it may not happen at this time or in the way she had imagined, she says her ideas are still being considered and implemented in a virtual form. A lot of that is able to happen because of the continued online services offered at the school. And as Lavisa says, although it was a hard decision, the transition has been successful. Well, I've been confident in the decisions we've made so far because of the processes we've gone through and because we have really uh, taken a lot of time and effort to consider um, consider everything we know or, and, and even some of the uncertainties. So, and as you've watched us, we've made and we've pivoted, pivoted different decisions as the weeks and the months have gone on. So, and, you know, going forward, I have a great team of people I work with and right across the system. And so, you know, we're confident in our decisions, and it's, they're the best decisions that we can make for the time that we're in. Are they going to be perfect? Absolutely not. Are there going to be mistakes? Sure there are. But that's just part of decision-making, is that you, you have to move forward. Well, I'd say they're doing a pretty good job, given the circumstances. Yeah, I would too. In the last four months, politicians have been faced with a lot. I mean, look at rookie MP Ryan Turnbull. He was elected to represent Whitby in the House of Commons on October 21st, 2019. In his first year, he's already been faced with a pandemic. So I actually met him back in October while he was campaigning, and one of his main goals was to bring more businesses to Whitby. Now, obviously that, and along with other things, has been quite difficult to achieve during this time. With some restrictions being lifted and the economy slowly restarting, he spoke with Tracy to reflect on what the past few months have been like for him. They talked about the hurdles he had to help the federal government get through and his own personal hardships. MP Ryan Turnbull can't believe the state of the world and all that has happened in 2020. He says he has been working around the clock, taking calls, answering emails from his Whitby constituents and trying to help residents with the many challenges they face due to the pandemic. When I spoke with him, he was concerned about the racial crisis and the police brutality issues the world is dealing with. He told me, although it's overwhelming to see the outpouring of anger and protests, it's imperative we have those uncomfortable conversations. Well, my dad was a police officer, so for me, um, I, I never interpreted cops that way until I became a teenager and my friends and I got harassed and even 
I got even assaulted by a police officer for not really doing anything other than uh, asking questions as to why they were doing what they were doing. But I think it, there's a whole different experience and world that Black people have that I don't fully understand. I've been asking myself questions and, you know, I've, I've had lots of conversations about it, but, uh, you know, really, I think we have to come from, or at least I, as a white person, have to come from a place of not understanding and really listening first. Uh, but I think um, I'm always really thankful when people, Black Canadians, are willing to talk about it openly and, and how they feel in their experience, because it must be so challenging to do that and to feel safe and comfortable doing that. Turnbull told me it's always been clear where he stands on racial inequalities and says it is tragic that stories like George Floyd's are still happening in our world. It's heartbreaking to see what's happening. And the protesting is not what's breaking my heart. It's the, the man that lost his life and the fact that there's so much pent up aggression and oppression, you know, that, that that violence is actually erupting in the streets of so many cities. It's like, to me, it's a sign of cultural repression. And to me, that's just like, it's devastating. The problems faced collectively by most Canadians and people around the world since George Floyd's killing and the Black Lives Matter movement aren't the only things Turnbull has been processing. He has been working from home, trying to represent his writing. His wife is also working from home, and his eight-year-old daughter is there too. We're used to uh, not being in the same physical space for this long of, of a period of time. So, you know, I mean, that's been challenging um, just on a personal level. Uh, I also have a mother in long-term care. Uh, who's feeling very depressed and isolated because no one can go and visit her. Uh, I had my grandmother pass away of cancer uh, about two and a half weeks ago. Like all of these things just layer on to your experience. Along with his personal life, he also has his responsibilities as a politician. I'm a person that I really care about people. Like I, I'm a big guy, but I'm kind of a softy. Like I really care about people. And um you know, I'm trying to get back to everybody and our whole team is really trying to respond to people and talk to them. Like, you know, we had people stranded all over the world when the border closed and I reached out and talked to people that were stranded in other countries and they were so scared and it, like I couldn't sleep at night. Like it was stressful because all I wanted to do is be able to help get them home. And we ended up getting a lot the vast majority of people home. You know, I've had people call me that are really angry about something our government is doing or not doing. And they're saying, what about me? And, you know, I have those difficult conversations with people and try to listen to them and, and understand their perspectives. He told me the biggest challenge is trying not to burn out and to protect his physical and mental health. He said he has had a hard time balancing because of his dedication to helping the people who elected him. Nobody can use a, a local politician that, that can't function. So, you know, that's been my biggest challenge, to be honest, is just um, trying to ensure that I take care of myself as well as serve the people that I care about so much. On a personal tone, he said he is thankful for the time he gets to spend with his family and the closeness it's brought them. 
I feel closer with my family, my immediate family than I ever have. And that to me feels really good. You know, so there's a, there's a family connection um, that we have that like is re been restored that maybe wasn't there because I feel close with my wife. I feel close with my daughter. We're going through this together. I think some of us can relate and admit to the positive side of this pandemic, the closeness we feel to the people in our lives. In Whitby, Ontario, at home with my family, I'm Tracy Bowersley. As we previously mentioned, politicians are facing a once-in-a-lifetime health crisis. It's not just our Prime Minister who's facing stressful times. It also trickles down to the city councillors. You may remember Derek Guyberson, the Oshawa City Councillor for Ward 4, who we featured on our music episode a few weeks back. He talked about the Crossing Point Festival, which has been put on hold. Well, now he's back. This time to talk about his time at the Backdoor Mission. The Mission is an organization that offers meals, washroom, and clothing for those in poverty. Guyverson spoke with Ryan about his involvement and how it has changed since the COVID-19 pandemic began. I am basically in two places. I'm either at home first thing in the morning and then when I get home later at night. If I'm not there, I'm, I'm typically here at the Mission. Guyverson's routine, like for many others, has changed a lot due to the pandemic. For one thing, he spends a lot more time at the Mission. I don't go anywhere else, like I don't go into my city hall office or into that building. Uh, I don't go grocery shopping, etc. Uh, it's just a way of reducing the possibility of cross transmission between populations. So I'm either here or I'm at home and then uh, walking in between and that's it. For the people who have come here for a bite to eat or just to use the washroom, volunteers have had to find a way to keep everyone safe. Um, we have screening at the front door. Now, most of our clients don't come into the building. If they're just coming for lunch service, it's basically like a takeout service and everybody is, uh, you know, it's a controlled lineup outside. So we have volunteers who are wearing uh, personal protective equipment. Uh, same with the ones bringing the meals out to the, the door for the meal takeout door. And uh, the volunteers outside, there are chalk distancing markers on the ground and they make sure that everybody is, uh, is um, complying with that. More people are coming to the mission now than before the pandemic. So they're making a lot of meals daily and adding staff to support everyone. They're working in the kitchen to get the meals prepped. They'll usually turn out, depending on the day, anywhere between 90 and 140 meals. So that goes on for about three hours, 10 a.m. to 1 p.m. And then from uh, 9 a.m., that's around a little bit before that, and around that time is when uh, healthcare practitioners start showing up. So. Uh, there's a nurse, a nurse practitioner, a doctor, uh, mental health support workers, but three or four of those, there's a social worker on site. Since the pandemic began in March, Guyberson has found it hard to take time off from the mission, but he does what he can to get a break. You know, I try to find little spots that I can take a breather and uh, come in a little bit later some days or leave a little bit early. And uh, even if that means uh, going home for an afternoon and, and just taking a nap or whatever. But, you know, I, I just sort of accept the fact that it's obviously it's not a normal time right now. It may not be normal, but Garberson is doing his best to adjust and give as much time as he can to support those who are living in poverty. In Oshawa, Ontario, I'm Ryan Hott.
As many of you may know, most of Ontario is entering into stage two of its reopening process, except for the greater Toronto area. This means malls, patios, barbershops, and hair salons will remain closed in our area. Fiona, as soon as I heard that news, I made the decision to just cut my own hair at home. I think it looks okay for the time being, but I'll definitely need to get it fixed when the COVID-19 cases drop and salons open up. A lot of those cases originated in long-term care homes. Many of the outbreaks in those areas have fortunately been contained. So maybe you can get your hair evened out sooner than you think. One of the reasons those cases have been contained is because of public outcry. I remember watching the news last month and seeing employees enraged by their working conditions. Well, Oshawa MPP Jennifer French has been aware of those problems plaguing long-term care homes for a long time. But much to her frustration, no one would listen. Then came a report by the Canadian Armed Forces about two weeks ago, a report that shocked even her. Tara spoke with her about that report and what needs to happen now. Here's a little bit of that conversation. My question is to the Premier. The military's account of what went on behind the curtain at Orchard Villa Long-Term Care Home in Pickering is awful. The families of Nina Watt and Paul Parks and George Morrison are just a few of the almost 80 grieving families wanting to know what happened at Orchard Villa. The city of Pickering is- So I know you're a really big advocate for long-term care homes. How do you feel about the recent news that's come out from some of them in Ontario? Um, it is, it is gut-wrenching uh, to know many of the truths behind the curtain, so to speak. The Canadian Armed Forces report um, was glaring. I mean, if you have read it line by line in black and white, um, it kind of takes your breath away to imagine that these are not, these are, these are accounts of real people's experience, loved ones who have, who suffered and struggled at their very end, um, which of course is not who we are as, uh, as a people that we would ever allow this to happen. That said, um, we as a province have allowed this to happen. Um, you know, since long before my first election, there were calls from the front lines from, you know, workers, nurses, personal support workers, families, um, you know, calling for a clear look at the system and, and constant reevaluation and sta minimum standards of care. So what do you think should be done to help the people living in these places? Um, great question. Uh, for the folks who are living in the long-term care homes, um, they should be able to trust that they are, are you know, cared for and looked after um, and considered and respected. So that is a, a place to start. Um, you know, the official opposition and, and many of the community partners and healthcare partners have been calling for a long time for a find and fix inquiry, a look into long-term care that you know, we've needed, we call, We were specifically calling for it after the wet law for murders, um, that while they were looking at that specific case, they should look more broadly at the system and really turn our attention to it. And as we find issues to fix them along the way, because obviously it's a system that is, is a mess and is broken. You can't fix it all in one day, but as you, you, as you find something, um, you have to, you know, you have to address it, right? Keep track, make, make the steps, uh, take the steps to to fix these major issues um, because people are living there now. It's not about creating a new system for 10 years from now and, and still have people suffering. 
So what is your message to employees working in long-term care homes right now during this situation? We're hearing a lot about um, the folks who are heroes right now. Um, and, and I'm not going to disparage or diminish that in any way, but I am going to say that PSWs, nurses, healthcare providers um, did not sign up to risk their lives at work. They, they want to make the world a better place and have people be safe and well. So while we call them heroes, we should not expect them to go through heroic efforts to do their jobs. Um, we thank them for everything they're investing, but by goodness sake, like by all means, they have to have the personal protective equipment. They have to have, um, you know, the rest that they need. They have to have the, the staffing to do the job. They have to have the ear of not just the employer, but those who, decision makers when they say, when they realize something isn't working that needs to be addressed. During this pandemic, political leaders have put their strengths and weaknesses on display. Now, for me personally, I think our access to the Canada Response Benefit has been a huge help to a lot of people. However, I do think that we're opening up a little too early. Yes, I can agree with you there. We have all, at one point or another, criticized our politicians. Big or small, we've all wished that a different choice was made. During a time where our leaders are facing two world crises, public judgment has been magnified. In this week's opinion piece, Brandon wanted to remind our listeners, while it's easy to be critical, it's also important to see the good that they have done. Too many bike lanes, not enough bike lanes, too much financial support, but not enough financial support. 47 city councillors or 25 city councillors. Before March, these are the kinds of things we were critiquing our political leaders for. Nothing meaningless, but rather small bureaucratic processes. The spring season has been anything but small for Canadian politicians. Politicians at the municipal, provincial, and federal level are dealing with not one global crisis, but two. And they are dealing quite well. In 2018, I didn't vote for the current premier, Doug Ford. I wasn't a fan of the way his promises were going to save the province money. And after his election, I felt like Ford further proved my point. By November 2019, there were cuts to mental health funding, OHIP, long-term care homes, and the cancellation of planned overdose prevention sites. Many left-leaning Ontarians would agree with me in saying Ford's cuts were less than beneficial. Many can argue it's even come back to bite us in the age of COVID-19. I'll remind you, I did not vote for Ford. I probably won't ever vote for Ford. But in the last few months, he deserves some credit. On March 17th, the Ontario government declared a state of emergency, a state we're still in right now. This closed all indoor recreational facilities, public libraries, movie theaters, parks, daycares, and limited the size of gatherings. Ford continued the lockdown at the end of the month, ordering the closures of all non-essential businesses on March 24th. In my opinion, this was the perfect response. The fear of COVID-19 came in the form of community spread. When the virus first arrived in Canada, if you weren't a traveler or related to a traveler, you were quote unquote fine. 
the lack of social isolation caused numbers to go up. Ford made the decision to give people very little reason to be out with others. Since the implementation of these measures, new daily cases of the virus have gone down from their highest of almost 700 a day in April to just between 200 and 300 new cases per day in June. Aside from his control over the pandemic, though, Ford has made a slip-up on the other global issue right now. Earlier this week, we released a special episode titled I'm Not Racist, discussing the current Black Lives Matter movement spreading across the U.S., Canada, and the world. At a time where a lot of political leaders have been quiet, a lot of eyes were on Ford when he made a statement on June 2nd. After weeks of praise for his leadership during COVID-19, Ford ruined it by saying Canada does not have a deep-rooted systemic racism problem. He has since come back to reframe his statement, but for some, including me, it's too late. Federally, the pandemic has meant big decisions for our Prime Minister as well. Contrary to Ford, I did vote Liberal in the October federal election. Trudeau and his Liberal Party have provided endless supports to Canadians in a time of need. The creation of the Canada Emergency Response Benefit, the Canada Emergency Student Benefit, the Emergency Care Benefit, and the special one-time GST payment to low- and modest-income families. Now, I know there are a lot of criticisms in the way Trudeau has been handing out monetary support, and they kind of sound like this. But the budget will never balance. He's just putting us further and further into debt. How can we ever get out of debt if Trudeau keeps throwing money around? CBC reported that in March, Canada lost 1 million jobs because of COVID-19, and another 2 million in April. Canadians needed help, and Trudeau provided it to them. Almost every single day since the pandemic began in Canada, Trudeau has spoken to his country right outside of Rideau Cottage. You may not like him, and that's okay. But I think you have to appreciate his communication. After all, it's more than our neighbors in the South are getting from their leader. That brings up my next point. 21 seconds of silence, thought, pondering. That's how long it took Trudeau to answer a question regarding U.S. President Donald Trump's response to Black Lives Matter protests, specifically the one in Washington, where Trump had protesters forcibly moved for a photo op. Many people were quick to say the long pause represented a lack of intelligence, that Trudeau didn't know how to answer the question. Personally, I thought the 21 seconds was louder than anything he said afterward. The silence represented the severity of the issues, the difficulty and the importance of language. It would be easy to say the first thing that comes to mind when talking about what is happening in the US and now in Canada as well, but it shows true leadership to realize how powerful your response will sound to other people. It's easy to be mad at your politicians at any level. They are always going to do something that makes one person happy and the next person angry. Before you send that next angry tweet calling for the removal of your representative, be thankful that you have leaders that are trying to help their people. In Oshawa, Ontario, I'm Brandon Wright. Next week, we're taking a look at another group of people who have been impacted by COVID-19. All of those people working in the entertainment industry. On that episode, we'll hear from a drag queen and an actor. And we'll hear Ryan's thoughts on what the movie theater industry will look like moving forward. We'll also hear from Shannon Burns, a radio host for Chum FM and iHeartRadio Canada. She tells us about how the pandemic is impacting the broadcasting industry. I think that it's going to show 
a lot of people that you don't always have to be in the studio to first of all be doing everything that you're doing and I think it's also going to show that it actually might take less people to do the job of so many other things in the industry. That's all for this week's episode of COVIDcation. Thank you so much for joining us. Earlier in the show, we heard from Oshawa City Councilor and part-time musician Derek Giberson. One of his bands, Horshack, was able to record a rendition of Jackson Brown's Running on Empty while they were separated. Here's their cover. It takes all night, that'll be alright.